0: Let us pray. O Lord, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit that we may be able to learn from you this morning. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. I'm going to talk more about character this afternoon, actually. This is a kind of introduction to character, if you like. But more precisely, it's the most powerful approach I know to speaking to the modern world in a way that garners their attention. In some ways, we have a harder task than our master had. Because if you read the Gospels, it says of both John the Baptist and Jesus that they came preaching a gospel of repentance. They could do that because they came to a people who had a knowledge of moral law which they agreed upon. That is no longer true in America. Our problem, as Alistair MacIntyre put it wonderfully in the opening parable of After Virtue, he says, I want you to imagine a government taking charge that knows nothing That's not difficult for us to imagine in Canada, and at times it looks the same in the United States. And they decide that all the problems in the world derive from science and scientists. So they lynch the scientists, blow up the laboratories, and burn the libraries, expecting the world to get better, a kind of green people gone mad approach to the world. Uh, Shortly, of course, things are worse, not better. So they decide to reinvent science. And they poke around in the ruins, and they find the odd bit of a partial equation here, a bit of equipment there. And they assemble it all together, and they teach it to the children by rote. And of course, it is of absolutely no value whatsoever, because it is divorced from any overarching sense of what science is. That, says MacIntyre, is what I'm trying to explain to you in this book, but not in relation to science. But in relation to morality, we have no overarching sense of what it is. He then does an incredible review of the whole of Western philosophical history, basically arguing that it was downhill from Plato. And the past 300 years were almost totally a cul de sac. At the end, he has a magnificent peroration. He says something like this He says, If you have followed my argument, then you will understand that I am proposing that we have already entered upon a second Dark Ages. But we should not be entirely without hope. Because the last time this happened, good men and women withdrew from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium into the task of forming communities within which they could keep the civilities and the virtues alive, and they succeeded. That, of course, is the monastic movement. The only difference is that last time, the barbarians were waiting at the gate. And this time, they have been ruling us for quite some time. And it is our failure to appreciate this fact that is at the heart of our problem. We are waiting for a doubtless new St. Benedict. An amazing, uh, prescient piece of writing, because that was written in the 1970s, how right he was. He's traveled the whole distance. He began as a Marxist. He's now a member of the Catholic Church and teaches Thomism. That's quite a journey. So, in a society that no longer agrees about the nature of good and evil, tensions are inevitable. And you cannot start by talking about repentance because it's a meaningless concept to many of the people that I talk to. About 30% of the lectures I give are to entirely secular audiences. This is a very nice, friendly week for me. I don't have to worry about being politically correct or how to play that game. But you certainly cannot start where Jesus started. And of course, if you do not believe in sin, then repentance is meaningless, forgiveness is impossible, and neurosis is inevitable. That's our society. The best approach that I've come across it has a long history, it goes back to Plato, but the most recent incarnation is from just a little bit north of you. Uh, it's Father Robert Spitzer from Gonzaga, who is a Jesuit who teaches quantum physics and theology. And when he prays, you think you're listening to a Pentecostal until you analyze the vocabulary. Uh, he is one of the brightest men in North America. And he has my two passions to, to the full. He loves students, and he loves learning, and he can bring the two together. And with his permission, I uh, take his somewhat philosophical approach and make it a little bit more earthy. After all, I am a physician, and physicians are very close to the ground much of their lives. Um, Much to my delight, in fact, about a year or 18 months ago, I had a book come through the post. And when I opened it, it was called The Four Levels of Happiness by another Jesuit. And I wondered how come it had arrived in my mailbox. And then I opened it and found that it was dedicated to me and to Father Robert Spitzer. And this Jesuit, another evangelical one, says that he spends every weekend teaching another church The Four Levels of Happiness. Why? Well, you all want to be happy, don't you? And everybody you're going to meet in the rest of your life wants to be happy, and most of them aren't. And we can do a lot about that. But the first thing to understand is that, as in so many other areas of our life, we have dumbed it down. We have truncated our understanding of happiness. So I want to teach you four levels of happiness. And all except the fourth, and even there, there is one little frightening clause, has a a parallel unhappiness. If you abuse the happiness by not understanding how it ought to be used, it will turn into unhappiness. Now, the first level I call animal happiness. Those are the happinesses we share with the animal kingdom. Basically, that comes down to food and sex. Now, food is easy. Uh, I live on a farm, so I watch this process. Uh, My cows could push down any fence that I could build. I they weigh on average 1,500 pounds plus at uh, maturity. But they don't, because as long as they have food, water, and an occasional bull, they are no problem. (laughs) Now, this is animal happiness. And unfortunately, Americans seem to be believing that they are like my cows and they are misunderstanding themselves in the process. There are no eating disorders in the kingdom of the cow, but there are here. In the average university audience, at least one in 10 of the women is either vomiting or starving herself. That is the abuse of food. And if you're doing it, go and get help. It's serious. It can destroy your life. One of the reasons, of course, is that we have forgotten the instructions of scripture, of which there will be more this afternoon, but the key understanding of the Jews about how to create a flourishing society actually revolves around the dining room table. Jewish education does not occur in the synagogue and school so much as it occurs at the dining room table. Now, I wonder how many of you know what the average contact time is between American parents and their children these days. The education department should at least be teaching you that. Anybody know? It's five minutes or less. That is terrifying. Part of your problem with obesity, as far as I'm concerned, is that you you have changed eating into refueling. And that's not a smart move because your satiety mechanisms click in slowly. With modern food and modern eating habits, you're bound to get out of control. But if you have meals properly with someone like my wife to make sure you learn some proper table manners, uh, you will not overeat because you will be forced to make polite conversation (coughs) and to eat in a way that isn't obnoxious to everybody looking at you. Uh, that means that your society mechanisms will have time to click in and you'll also get educated in the process. One of the joys of my life, all four of my children have said to me at some time in the last two or three years, you know, our most important education occurred at our dining room table. Over the years, we had many students come to our home once I got out of the wilderness. They came because Sally was a very good cook. But they also came for the arguments. Our table often had more books than plates on it at the end of a meal. We're a very competitive crowd. And getting the quotation right was uh, important to us. Uh, My wife would get annoyed when I'd get up from the middle of dinner and say, that's wrong. And I'd go and get a book to prove that I was right. (laughs) She'd say, we believe you anyway. I said, no, you don't. times are meant to be like that. They're meant to be the most loved part of the family, one of the most loved parts of family living. Sally uh, knew that that was important, so when we arrived in North America, for instance, she refused to have a microwave because she looked around and she could see what the problems were immediately. She said, if I have a microwave, it won't be long before the children say, I'm busy at the moment, I'll have my dinner, supper later, I'll warm it up. She said, they're not doing that to me. You had to have a very, very good reason in our family not to be there for mealtimes. And it is important. Uh, We have abused the good of eating and turned it into refueling. Change that. Make it a time that reaches out to other people. Just once, Sally, having made the Sunday meal the best meal of the week, got tired of cooking and said, we're having sandwiches today. All four of the children left in tears. She never, ever tried it again. And realized that that there was something very, very important going on there. And of course, the other end of it, the abuse of food in bulimia and anorexia and obesity is a horrendous problem. And it's not one that we can dismiss. Uh, It's one that we have to deal with, especially in the church. We're always... uh, misquoting the scripture, you know, if your brother's eye offends you, pluck it out. That's the way we go about it, isn't (laughs) it? So if you don't drink, you're always pointing the finger at alcoholics. But if you're grossly overweight, you don't talk about gluttony. But there's a great deal of biological uh, injustice from the human point of view. It's one of the many seminars I'm looking forward to in heaven. Uh, but it is true that everybody can, in principle, control their body weight. Uh, there are only a few syndromes that that is not true of. I used to collect them. I know about this. Uh, nobody was overweight in Auschwitz. No one. We need to deal with these things, and we need not to point fingers, but to help one another. Now, my, I, I'm not the one to talk about this because God, by some, Mysterious grace of his own knowledge gave me a perfect body weight regulation mechanism, so my weight hasn't changed in 40 years. Uh, But even those of you who have a weight problem, by the way, are in fact controlling your weight but not accurately. If I take a malnourished child, every five calories above maintenance will lead to one gram of tissue. That means If you were eating 15 calories a day more than you need and there was no body weight regulation mechanism, you'd go up uh, by 10 kilograms every 10 years. For Americans, 22 pounds. That's a lot. None of you are doing that. But the mechanisms need work. It's the abuse of food, the bad eating patterns that are the primary responsibility. And the church, if the rules were followed, it would not be the problem that it is. So, when you start your families, take this very seriously. Sex, of course, is even worse. What I'm about to say is so profoundly countercultural that I was very slow to do it. Uh, I thought about it for a while and didn't have the courage. And eventually, of course, tried it out on an airplane. Uh, <laughs> the only safe place to try out outrageous ideas. Uh, It was a student who sat next to me, and that was really unfair. Because very shortly, he found himself talking about happiness. And we got to this point. And I said to him, well, if you're like my class, you're sleeping around. The problem with sex disconjoined from committed love is that it will shortly become first boring and then perverted. And I waited for the explosion of disagreement. But it didn't come. Instead, after a minute or two, he said, I've never thought about it that way, but perhaps you're right. Now, it turned out, of course, that he'd had multiple sexual liaisons over the previous two years, and each one, inevitably, had been shorter than the one before, because it was about sex. And it's not an intrinsically highly exciting activity forever. It is initially, but not divorced from its real function. And that's what he had to learn. If you do emergency in any large city, you see the outcome of sex divorced from committed love. And it is not pretty. And of course, during my lifetime, this process has gone exponentially mad. When I started in medicine, you could get through medical school with the knowledge of four sexually transmitted diseases. Now you need 40. That is not progress, or at least not in a forward direction. That's where our society is heading. Every time I go to Africa, I am reminded of this in extremely painful terms. I hadn't done any ward rounds for about four years until the last day of 2005, New Year's Eve. I was staying in Bloemfontein in South Africa flying home that night, staying with a pediatrician. And she said, please do ward rounds with me. I'd like you to teach my residents. So I did. The first time I went to South Africa in the 80s, I had seen more AIDS than they had. It had arrived in South Africa that year. That ward round, over half the children in the ward were HIV positive. And some of them would be dead in days. They were beyond recall. On average, in the developing world, without uh, appropriate drugs, ARVs, life expectancy is four years. In the black medical school in Madunza, at least 10% of the entry medical students are HIV positive. That's a horrendous world. That's where we are at the moment. And our current misunderstanding of sexuality is leading to behaviors that are totally destructive humanity. And of course in the church we are so prissy we never talk about it. How can we expect the world to take us seriously when the issues that are destroying them most obviously we cannot even talk about without embarrassment? That's got to change. Every youth group in the country has to have a lecture every year on sexually transmitted disease and a lecture uh, on sexuality and it has to be for real the rubber has to hit the road and we're not doing it so that's how easily happiness one food and sex maps to unhappiness one from the abuse of those things the people who have the best sex by far as I've already said in this series are people who are chased before marriage faithful afterwards, and using natural family planning. Because their relationships are rooted in both humanity and a trust in God. And those two things really make us human. Uh, When we start messing with these things, we're in trouble. Lewis said it a long time ago. For the men of old, the major problem of human life was how to conform human life to reality, and that was God's law. The modern American, in particular, approach is how to conform life to human desires. And the solutions are techniques, and they don't work. We are proposing in our society at the moment to control moral problems by technical means. Will not work. A good example would be metal detectors at the entrance to high school. That's a technological solution to a moral problem. Even locks and lockers are technical solutions to moral problems. I grew up in the British equivalent of Detroit. But in my school education, we never needed locks, even in the roughest areas of Birmingham. That's not an improvement, is it? What do we do when we get to unhappiness one? The only way out is to go up to happiness, too, which is what ought to happen at university. It's what Socrates intended, but it isn't. The quotation that was read out is derivative, of course, as 98% of all that we all say is. Eliot, a long while ago, understood what was going to happen. In Choruses from the Rock, he says, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? I add another line to that. I say that information without knowledge is useless, and knowledge without wisdom is dangerous. When medical students get their degree, they have lots of information. They pass the exam, which is basically information recall. It becomes knowledge when I can stop them in the corridor and say, I have just seen a baby in intensive care. Here are the biochemical parameters. What should I do? If they can answer that question without reference to a text, they have got knowledge. But then we go and see the baby, and wisdom may require that we do nothing. Instead, disconnect the baby from all the tubes and put it in its mother's arms, because that is where it ought to die. We're not a society that majors at all in wisdom. We're not even very good at knowledge. Knowledge is when you understand what you're doing. Information doesn't require understanding. And the world has changed, and it's hard to see how it could be otherwise. When I began in science, we made our own equipment, calibrated our own pipettes. What that meant was that we really understood the limits of the measurements we were making in technical terms. Now we buy black boxes, whose interiors we do not understand. And in many cases in medicine, the doctors are at the mercy of programmers. And the program may not turn out to be apposite to the problem in hand. That happens frequently death my technological expertise not a good news not good news what socrates wanted the university to be was a place where you found out what you were good for and you built an intellectual structure for your lives of which you could be proud now i never taught for the last 20 years before fourth year and in the first lecture which was always the one i enjoyed most one of the things i would say is Well, you've been in university for four years or three years. How far are you getting with building an intellectual structure of which you can be proud? You ought to put down foundations and put up some of the main supporting uh, structures by this stage, building a metaphor of a building. Of course, there was no response because they hadn't done anything like that. And I said, what you're telling me, isn't it, is that you haven't even begun that particular process. Uh, what you have done is memorize and dump. Memorize and dump. You couldn't even pass the exam that you passed six weeks ago, today, cold. That is not education. Especially in a world where information is freely available at the touch of a button. What is not available is how you sort out which of those pieces of information is true and which is not. And there's nothing, in my experience, that comes close to the gullibility of the average evangelical. Uh, The number of them who are swallowing large quantities of nutritional supplements is beyond belief. What does that say to God about his capacity to make food? Uh, There is no evidence for using them. My family have never taken any at any time, except a little vitamin D which is in the milk in Canada, because you shouldn't really live that far north and have only two square inches of face showing to sunshine uh, for a good chunk of the year. I gather here you don't have sunshine either, but in your case it's cloud. Uh, but no, if you need a nutritional supplement, you need a diagnosis. Because if you need one, you're likely to need amounts that you do not get from the bottle. You need to know what you're doing. One of the joys of my life, given my interest in uh, medical and biological uh, trivia, well, not always trivia, was one particular disease, uh, which is exceedingly rare. And mothers who have a child with this disease go to every pediatrician in this town, the next one, and the one after that, and nobody knows what it is. And being at the end of that sort of referral pattern, every now and again, one would turn up with me. Uh, they bring in a little runt who smells all the while, has a funny rash, uh, which I immediately recognize, especially from its distribution. Not growing very well. An unhappy child. And then I can say to the mother, I'll give you a normal child back in 48 hours. That. They think you're God, especially when it happens. But to do it, you need an amount of zinc, which would make you or me very sick indeed. Uh, They've lost one particular transporting protein. And you can override it only by sheer volume. That's what should happen. That's real knowledge translated into action. And it's, it's a very satisfying thing. Really acquiring a proper understanding of something and being able to handle it is an extremely enjoyable thing to do. I think frequently, as professors, we don't model our enjoyment of learning as well as we should. Because, of course, there's a lot of work to be done before you reach that kind of stage. So for instance, uh, here you are in a Bible college And I gather you have an extremely good Greek program, but it's not oversubscribed because it's a lot of work. But languages are of permanent significance. Many of the other courses are not. Uh, We don't like hard work, do we? That has to change as Christians. Socrates wanted an environment in which day by day, you were excited about what you're going to learn. So that he would be appalled at the thought that he could not pass an exam today that he passed a month ago. If he couldn't, the exam was wrong because he'd been working hard at it. Of course, the exams are wrong. There is absolutely no correlation between performance in medical school as measured by the exams and performance as a doctor. If there wasn't such a vested interest in the area called medical education, the whole process would be trashed. Anybody who looked at outcomes would say, we need to change. But it won't, because there's too many vested interests. About 15 or 20 years ago, obviously, I couldn't do anything in the medical program. It's so bureaucratized. But I did have my own course in biochemistry for about 15 students a year. It started as 20, but my intention in the first class was always to reduce it by at least uh, 25%. And that was not difficult to do, uh, because many of them were just looking for a routine high mark. And I always began with two or three uh, examples that made it clear that wasn't going to happen in this course. I would, for instance, say, what have we taught you in this course about the beginning of the cosmos? No, it's biochemistry. They're not actually interested in cosmology. And I said, well, it's a fundamental question. You ought to have picked up something in the science faculty. The only thing I ever got was a muttered Big Bang. And I said, no, no, I'm interested in a more general philosophical approach. Would you be interested in some options? And they'd say, yes. So I'd say, well, here are three. Either the cosmos was created, in some sense, or it is eternal, or it is self-creating. Can you think of any possibility that is not covered by those three? They couldn't. There is one, but it doesn't exist. You only imagine you're here. Um, but that's not of any great interest to people in the science faculty. Uh, So I only told them about that afterwards. And they said, well, let's find out which you believe. So I said, how many of you believe you are created? It's a very interesting question in North America. It has geographical variation. Uh, On the east coast of Canada, which is a time zone and a half further east than the US, it's a, it's a wonderful part of the world. It's back way before the 1950s. They believe in God out there. You get to Quebec, which is the most postmodern bit of North America, and they think the question is meaningless, and they don't believe. In Ontario, much like your East Coast, 10 or 20% of the students will acknowledge, but only like this, rarely like this. Uh, so I say, well, you're only Christians you don't count, and they laugh. And then I wrap their knuckles and say, would you have said the same if I'd said you're only Jews or Muslims? And by the way, if you ever hear an anti-Christian comment, don't take it as an evidence of humility when you don't respond. It's not. It's cowardice. What you should say is something like this. I'm not sure I heard you precisely. Would you repeat that comment? But please substitute Jew or Muslim for Christian. If you're not prepared to do that, you owe me an apology now. That's perfectly right. That's what should be done. Uh, So knuckles wrapped, we proceed. Uh, One down, two to go. How many of you do not believe that the second law of thermodynamics is true? Well, there are none of them. So I say, which model is therefore untrue? And they work it out. For once, Aristotle is wrong. It means the cosmos is finite. It had a beginning. It will have an end. So that means I know what you do believe, the vast majority of you. You believe in a self-creating cosmos, as did Fred Hoyle and Bertrand Russell. But that disappeared when Hubble discovered the red shift. And anyway, they knew why they believed it, and you don't. They believed it to avoid God. You believe it because you don't think. Just. Just imagine what would have to happen if you were to create yourself. You would have to be here before you are here. That is nonsense. It certainly destroys logic. I need logic for this class. If you believe that, you ought to leave now. And 25% do. Wonderful. The class improves. (laughs) Now, into that environment, I took the lazy way for many years. Computers, are a very convenient way to mark exams and no great trouble to yourself. Uh, But it's very hard to test what kind of minds you have in your class. What really got to me was discovering that students were becoming very sophisticated cheats. And so I was horrified. They were using my class to cheat to get marks they didn't deserve. I was determined that that was not going to continue. I didn't know how I was going to do it. But then it struck me, since I wasn't smart enough to catch them, the only thing I could do was to take away cheating as an advantage. And I dropped all examinations of the traditional variety. I haven't used them for 15 years. All my exams were totally open book. You had access to a computer. You could go to the library. You could use a telephone. You could talk to your neighbor. Uh, They thought it would be easy. (laughs) It wasn't. Because what I did, I would take a paper that was published in the last week before the exam. I could always find one that suited my purposes. I'd give it them four days before the exam. All they didn't know was what the question was going to be. They had to come and fetch that from my office at 8 o'clock in the morning. And at 5.30, there had to be a typed answer. They were horrified at how hard it was. But the very first year I did it, I gave an A plus to one young woman. I rarely give A pluses. I think they should be for very special people. But she had done extremely well. But when I saw her transcript, she was a B student. I was out of line with the whole of her previous three years of experience. She desperately wanted to go to graduate school. My A plus just made it possible. Now, some 15 years later, She is an independently funded investigator with an average annual income of about a quarter of a million dollars. I was right. They were wrong. (laughs) Because I was testing her capacity to read, to analyze, to criticize, and to plan. What more could you ask of a graduate student? Which is, after all, what my class is about. That's what should be happening. Information recall is laziness on the part of teachers. Now, there are some things you need to recall, but there are ways of doing that. Uh, In medicine, you'll require them anyway by sheer repetition. But understanding is very hard to teach. And of course, critical thinking courses, in my opinion, anyway, are largely a rip off. You can't do that. If we could, it would be easy. Uh, What you can do, and the way I taught the class as a whole, was week by week, i introduce them to a bit of science. And then I would give them a paper, sometimes a good one, sometimes a bad one, sometimes a mediocre one. They didn't know what it was going to be. Then they had to go and write a presee. Of course, they'd never written one in their lives. uh, So they didn't, not wishing to appear ignorant, they didn't say they didn't know what I was asking for. And here were honest students, and none of them got a mark over 50% on the first test. Uh, You can imagine what. That did to the class. Uh, I then gave them my pricey, which had taken me about 40 minutes. They'd spent three hours, but they could see the difference. And then week by week, they did that. What that does is hone your capacity to read. Basically, what we have forgotten how to do is read, even within the church. People read the Bible without recognizing the genre of the literature they are reading. You're bound to read in a very wooden way if you do that. Uh, That's where we're at at the moment. That needs to change. So happiness, too, is about when your mind gets turned on to develop the talents that God has given you. The trouble is, we make it competitive, don't we? If I told you that I don't remember a day of anxiety in school, you probably wouldn't believe me, would you? But it was actually true. Uh, But modern students live from one evaluation to the next in a state of chronic anxiety, especially some of the more dutiful ones of you, and especially some of you who are immigrant from families with demands upon you which are unreasonable. Uh, That's happening a great deal. Constant evaluation is constant neurosis. Especially in medical school, it makes no sense whatsoever. Because once we've allowed someone into medical school, after a year, we have to make something out of them. We've already spent too much money on them. What we need is criteria to demonstrate competence. And that's much harder. It can be done. And that needs to be done across the board. It's time to change the system. The system isn't working. And with information as freely available as it is now, what was needed in the past to find that information was a training program. It, to be a good user of the stacks meant that you would got a good mind. You had a network of authors and things. That's all gone now. Those skills are meaningless. So we need a new system. And the education system is responding slowly or not at all. And so unhappiness, too, is neurosis. At least 20% of our medical students are having problems with drugs and alcohol in a very short time. I go to medical meetings knowing that about 30% of physicians could not be called in off duty and be expected to be competent. They control their release mechanisms so that they're competent when they're supposed to be. But they can't control their lives. They're out of control, as is the whole of our society. How else do you describe a 50% uh, divorce rate and at least a 15% STD rate in students coming into university? That's an out of control society. The only way out is to go to happiness three. Happiness three is when you begin to realize that some things are intrinsically worth doing. They're worth doing for no other reason than that they exist. The best example would be children. Raising children is not pure continuous joy, especially two-year-olds, right? Uh, But it is one of the best things you do in your life, especially if, by the grace of God, you're allowed to do a half-decent job. Uh, I refer to my CV now as my curriculum vanitas, uh, but not to my uh, grandchildren. They're my curriculum vitae, and very different they are, and it's a joy to watch them. And they give you joy along the way. Happiness 3 has some nice laughs attached to it every now and again. The first one I remember with my grandchildren was my uh, granddaughter Hannah, now a, a very nice young woman, of approaching puberty. Uh, but when she was three and a half, her mother, my daughter Kathy, looked up, and I was there. She was pushing over her little brother, Caleb, every time he balanced on two legs, just for the fun of it. And Kathy looked at her and said, Hannah, I wish to speak to you. And Hannah looked up at her and said, I don't wish to discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> Which at three and a half was not bad, but Cathy just about got her to the bedroom and shut the door before we all burst out laughing. And, <laughs> and I said, glory, hallelujah, there's justice in this world because Cathy <laughs> had been the same sort of child herself. So I see others know these children, yes. Uh, That's happiness 3. Medicine can give you happiness 3. When you get pulled into the care of patients beyond the call of duty. When you save someone's life, when under any ordinary circumstances it would not have been saved. You go home, not paid in dollars, but paid in much better currency. Uh, You never forget them. They never forget you. I've often been in Africa when American docs have arrived to do a short-term mission. For a couple of weeks, we work them hard. Uh, they see a lot of patients every day under difficult circumstances for no pay. And do you know what they invariably say at the end of it? This is the best couple of weeks I can remember for a long, long time. Why? Because they were appreciated. In Africa, I never left a clinic without a gift. Uh, Every time we went to Africa in the summer, by the end of the summer we had a little flock of chickens, (laughs) largely because of my children. All my children as teenagers spent their summers resuscitating malnourished children. When they got to 13, I taught them how to save the life of a 10-pound two-year-old. All my children had children die in their arms when they were teenagers. It didn't do them any harm, but they were loved in the villages. Because the Africans appreciated what they did. So there are lots of little Nicholas and Jonathans in the middle of Africa because of them. I was known as my children's father, and what a privilege that is. That's happiness three. But happiness three is a need to be needed love, it comes to an end. It's called the emptiness syndrome, it's called retirement, it's called chronic disease. We're meant to have all four levels of happiness all the while, but being the creatures we are, it doesn't work that way very often. It should. And if we will not pay attention any other way, we will get to unhappiness three. The only way out now is to go to happiness four. Now, given my malicious sense of humor, I love doing this in a place like New York, in Grand Rounds, say, because physicians will follow me through this argument in a obviously i have to do a much more truncated version there but they're all obsessive compulsives and within 2 minutes of starting they realize this is good and out comes their pencil and i know they've written down h1 u1 h2 u2 h3 u3 h4 and then i say i can't possibly tell you what happiness for is because it's politically incorrect to do so in a state funded institution and I keep an absolutely deadpan face, and they get very agitated. Uh, (laughs) Then eventually one of them says, you can't do that to us. You know you can't do that to us. I said, well, perhaps I'll take the risk if I have a quorum. How many of you want me to do it? Up go 90% of the hands instantly, you know. And I can never resist saying I'm glad the rest of you are Democrats, with a small d, of course. (laughs) Now, Happiness 4, they're smart. I don't have to rub their noses in it. Another evangelical bad habit. Uh, I say, well, let me just tell you some Happiness 4 stories. You can work it out. I always start with the same one, because I want them to go and get the book. It's not one of mine. I told you one of mine yesterday, I think, or the day before. Stephen, I told that story here. Was it some other lecture I've given? Have I told the story of Stephen yet? No, well, I have to do that here then. Okay, I'll do that in a moment. Um, But I give too many lectures, they run into one another. Uh, This one comes from a a colleague at Yale, a woman called Diane Comp. She'd be a lovely speaker here, except that she's now in Liberia. Um, She, like me, grew up in a Christian home. Like me, turned out to be smart without knowing what it meant. And we both went off to university and lost our faith and got promoted. That's the usual sequence. She ends up running the pediatric oncology program at Yale, looking after kids with cancer. And if you are well brought up, go thank the people who gave you that. If you are honest, hardworking, reliable, trustworthy, you didn't do it. It was done to you. Go thank them while they're alive to be thanked. she, I flirted with Marxism and then became merely driven by ambition. Those are things you can get over. Marxism disappeared one afternoon on a cliff in Czechoslovakia. That's easy. Um, existentialism is a much more serious uh, condition. And that's what Diane had chosen. But she was good, a very nice lady, single lady, loves children, doesn't have my 15 grandchildren. So she really knows her kids. She does everything for them. Run support groups, the parents are going to lose their kids. You name it, she does it except one thing. She had come to believe that life has no eternal meaning. So she had nothing to say to a dying child. The only honest thing would be to say, this is absurd. I'm glad it's you dying, not me. That's neither kind nor uh, helpful. Uh, It may be true. uh, But Diane was a nice, kind, helpful lady. So she solved the problem by never being there. But her mother, so to speak, kept showing up at the back of her head saying, Diane, I didn't bring you up to desert people you love and who love you when they need you. And of course, in the end, she gave in. And God being God showed up on the very first occasion. A little girl of eight dying of leukemia, she'd fa- Diane had failed. She was semi-conscious, drifting away with the parents and the hospital chaplain sitting by the bed. Just before she died, she had a lucid interval. She sat up in bed, bright-eyed, and said, "Mummy, can you see the angels? Can you hear their singing? It's beautiful. And she fell back dead. The parents turned out to be Christian. And of course, that was a huge help with their bereavement. The hospital chaplain actually ran away. He'd only got psychology 101, and he couldn't cope. It hadn't been covered. Uh, (laughs) Diane, as she said, was the little professor in a great deal of trouble because she was honest. She knew she was not looking at a psychological quirk. She was seeing a reality that she had been in denial of for far too long. She didn't give in immediately. But of course, what she had seen is something you see with children more than adults, that none of us die. Death is only seen by those left behind, not by those who are going. Uh, our Lord promised that, didn't he? He that he believeth in me shall never die. We don't. We go to life, with a capital L. And she'd seen it. It took two more children to bring Diane back to the kingdom. As she said, I was an arrogant Yale professor, so God had to humble me too. And the child who brought her back to faith had an IQ of 80. How? Well, it was a Down syndrome child, of course, in a Christian family. Now, can Down syndrome children love? Oh, yes. Can they understand that Jesus loves them? Yes. And what's their response? Well, they love him in return, of course. Well, what else would you do? And he also was dying of leukemia, and the family was smart. They said, look, you're just going to get more and more tired. And one day, you'll wake up with Jesus instead of with us. Do you think he had any problem with that idea? Especially when they said, and we'll join you later. He was quite looking forward to it in some ways. But he also had the wisdom of these children. And one night he said to his mother, Auntie Diane, which is what he called Diane Comp, is worried that I'm dying. Please tell her it's all right. Please tell her I'm going to be with Jesus and I want her to come too. When she heard that story, it was game over. The tears flowed and she was back in the kingdom. That's happiness for. They come in many, many varieties. In my own case, the one I thought I'd told you already and apparently haven't, was about a young man with cystic fibrosis. When I came back from working in the developing world with 10-pound two-year-olds, I still had questions I wanted to answer. And uh, so I needed a model of malnutrition here. And I found it in the cystic fibrosis clinic. Most children dying of CF 20 years ago were technically malnourished to death. And, uh, So I wanted to know, could I reverse it? And was there any benefit? I jumped through the hoops to get permission. The first volunteer was a 15-year-old boy with the body mass of an 11-year-old. He would do anything to get some muscle. What he volunteered for was to be fed with a tube through his nose for uh, 30 days uh, with a chronic cough. That's tube in and out a dozen times a day. Torture if you hadn't volunteered. But he never complained. About halfway through the month when we got to know one another, I was called on a Sunday by the nurses saying, we have lots of admissions, if you want your protocol followed, you'll have to come put the tube in yourself. So in I went and put the tube in, and in being a Sunday, I was wearing a suit. I was back in church by this stage. And he, being a bright lad, drew the obvious conclusion, he said, oh, you go to church? I said, yes, do you? It turned out he was Catholic, I was Protestant, and that's all we said. Uh, but he obviously said something to his mother, who somehow had the insight to know that there was a beating heart under the cynical exterior of this physician. And she actually said to me, you know, you could and you should talk to Stephen and your other patients about faith. You could do that. I didn't, of course. Um, But some four years later, I then got to know Stephen. From his point of view, the, the the, the experiment was a failure, but not from mine. And we ended up developing a... Protocol that's used all over the world now. We put the first permanent feeding tube into a CF patient about 20 years ago, or perhaps more. Anyway, um, about four years later, about this time of day, I was called to go and see him. And when I got to his room, he was clearly dying. And uh, he hadn't said anything for a couple of hours, which is fairly typical. His mother was sitting there, just being there, doing it right, undoubtedly praying. But when I came in, he said, good, I want to speak to you. Sit down. So I sat down. We were friends by this stage. And he said, it says in the Bible, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. I'm 19, and I'm dying, and I don't want to. What do you say? What would you do? (coughs) What I wanted to do was run away, but I couldn't. He was a friend. I tried to escape the professorial route. Stephen, that's a difficult question. It will take a little while, but he soon stopped that one. He said, I have a little while. Both he and I knew he had a few hours. And of course, then I went through the Catholic catechism, and he believed that God was God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, when we confess our sins, we're forgiven, and when we die, we go to heaven. The problem was, it wasn't helping, as indeed a propositional gospel often doesn't. Uh, and I didn't know what to say, so I was praying too. Lord, what do I say? And into my head popped Annie Dillard, of all people, just one line. Oh, yes, God will provide for all your needs, but do read the small print. He decides what your needs are, and I knew what to say. I'd already pointed out to Stephen that there were children running on the ward who would not have been walking but for his courage. And uh, I said, I think, Stephen, your problem is that you're misreading the text. You're reading it like so many people today. If I ask, you'll give the name it and claim it brigade but that's not in the Bible. He only gives what is good viewed from his point of view, not ours. And it doesn't always look the same. And I said to Stephen, I think what God is saying to you is something like this. Stephen, you have done all that I want you to do. You have coughed enough. It's time to come home. Given what you've told me you believe, if you are Able to, you are also required to believe that is truly the best thing that can happen to you. The question is, can you do that? There was a very profound silence. And then he looked up and said, thank you. That helps. I think I can. And he did. He died very peacefully about three hours later. But it wasn't over from me, because about three weeks later, I received a letter from his mother, who'd said not a word during the whole time, and it began, It was ironic you were not allowed to give Stephen food for his body, but thank God you were there when he needed food for his soul. And I was in trouble because I had to reach back 20 years to the last time I had had a conversation like that with a patient. I had been practicing very bad medicine for a very long time and I had to repent and change and I had to help others to do so in an ethos which was opposed to doing that. Uh, It took a little courage, not much on my part. I enjoy that sort of thing. Uh, But I did change, and it's part of the reason I'm here. That wasn't happiness for, in the sense of great emotion. And I hope you've noticed that as you go up the happiness scale, there's less emotion, more depth, and infinitely greater duration. That's why people who suffer are often, paradoxically, more happy than those who haven't. The Lord be with you.